All right, guys. Well, I want to throw out a, a few little questions to kind of prompt our thinking. Um, when, I, when I speak of the term orthodox or orthodoxy, what comes to mind? Brainstorm. Greek Orthodox. Why Greek Orthodox? Okay. What is Greek Orthodox in a nutshell? Uh, it, is the, it is the Eastern Church yeah. uh, that's split from the Western Church. Okay. So an institutional idea of Orthodoxy. Okay, good. What else? Like structured order rules. Structure, order, rules. Good. Tradition. Tradition. Okay. Anything else come to mind? More liturgical? Okay. Does your mind immediately go to positive concepts or ideas, or maybe leaning a little more, for lack of a better term, negative ideas in general? More negative? One more negative? Yeah, sure. Well, when you think of the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church as a starting point, do you think, sign me up, I'm on board, or do you think, I'm not so sure I should be on board with that version of orthodoxy? Or when you think of rules and regulations, do you think a restriction or a confinement of freedom, or do you think, you know, this is, this is exactly what I need, I need a lot of rules and regulations? I mean, how, how does your mind go perceptively? Yeah. An internal working. Okay. You, were you about to say something? Well, I was going to say, in the, in the formal outworking, it's really very little different than the Catholic Church in terms of formalism and internalism. But in the theological sense, it's very positive work. Okay. Now, you can't do that because that's what I'm, that's my job. <laughs> Leave it to Shane. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but that's right. I mean, you know, Lee said it depends on the context, and of course it does. But I think that you, I think that this was a good sort of example of looking at this idea or this term, orthodox or orthodoxy, and how it kind of lands on you, it, how it just kind of perceptibly strikes you, you know. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that that's pretty common. Would you say that today, in the sort of the contemporary evangelical church, whatever that means, I mean, just kind of work with me on that term. It can mean a lot of different things, but would you say that the church is more inclined toward thinking in orthodox terms or not? Would you say, what do you think the church at large thinks of the term theology? Downplays it. Downplays it? Okay. Would you irrelevant? Why? Why? Why do you think? I mean, what do you think the rationale would be to downplay theology or to consider it irrelevant as two ideas? I think most churches think of theology as inward focused instead of uh, like out into the community focused. So they put them as parallels to each other. Uh, sorry, opposites of each other. Okay. Um, so if they focus on theology, how could we? So theology is sort of like this useless spiritual navel-gazing, while, whereas you know, what I want to be about is the life and ministry of Christ in my community. I want to be you know, Jesus with hands and feet, that kind of thing. Is that what you're saying in terms of the spectrum-ish? Yeah, I think that that's probably what 
how most of us would kind of identify that. It's interesting, though, when you think about these terms in light of what we've been studying, we've been talking about. We've been talking about heresies that sort of took hold to one degree or another. In every case that we've talked about, they've been, they've been prominent. They had significant impact in the first few centuries of the, of the church. Um, how do you determine a heresy if you don't have some concept of orthodoxy or right theology or right doctrine, right? And when you think about <clears throat> the early church, well, let me let's just give you an example, or excuse me, a definition, remind us of this definition. This is not a you know, definition taken from you know, Grudem's systematic theology or some theological website or anything like that. This is just Webster's. Dictionary definition of heresy. Um, uh, it's uh, adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma. So dogma, orthodoxy, stated doctrine. Um, it's inherent in that definition. A second definition is a dissent or deviation from dominant theory, opinion, or practice. So the idea of something being deemed heretical is up against something else. It stands in contradiction to something else. Uh, And so we have to have some idea or thoughts about orthodoxy or doctrine or theology before we can say anything's heretical. In fact, uh, Bruce Shelley, in his uh, book on church history, he wrote, he states this maxim about heresy, there can be no heresy if there is no orthodoxy. He goes on to say that some have wrongly concluded that since classic orthodoxy was not spelled out by the church councils until the 4th and 5th centuries, that there were no heretics before this. So there would would be some that would argue from a historical perspective that until you had the sort of institutional laying down of orthodox Christian teaching and orthodox Christian belief, which emerged and began in the 4th and 5th centuries, and much of it in response to heretical beliefs and teachings and that kind of thing, <clears throat> that you really couldn't classify something as truly heretical. We've even had, uh, we've even talked about this, but we've had people that are teaching that, you know, the, there was a large period of time where there was really an absence of Scripture, accessibility to Scripture, to authoritative source material, to authoritative revelation from God in the New Testament era, against which you would measure right or wrong, truth or error. So when you think about this period of time, I operated with this massive presupposition in launching into this study of early church heresies. I'm operating with a presupposition that there was something orthodox at that time, against which those heretical teachings were measured and really judged as being heretical. That's easy for us to do now, because we have the canon of Scripture. We have, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it based upon my 21st century reading and understanding of sound doctrine and teaching. In fact, last week, you recall, we did sort of a little survey of the cessationist position on gifts and kind of an extension of our discussion of Montanism. Right? And, and I read from our church's doctrinal statement, which has all these footnotes of these passages of Scripture from the New Testament. 
But some would argue that back during that time of the early church, in the early you know, first few centuries of the church, prior to the, quote, canonization of the New Testament, that it was, in, in many ways, you know, loose in terms of access to solid, authoritative, revelatory content. So how do you, how do you measure this? How, how, how can we know and have confidence in our understanding of these early church heresies, and how was the church able to respond? And the reason why I'm, I'm drawing this out and want to kind of almost as a, you know, like the, the movies that do prequels, you know, they come out with like six versions and then they do a prequel and they go back in time. This is kind of the prequel to the lessons I've been teaching on, uh, on heresies, in a sense, because I think it's really both important but also very encouraging and dovetails off of what I said at the end of last time's lesson about we always can have confidence that Christ is building his church as he said he would. So regardless of the onslaught of heretical teaching, regardless of the influence of persecuting elements in society or in government or whatever it may be, that Christ is building his church as he said he would. And, in conjunction with that, his word, his truth, the revelation of himself, his his standards, his instruction, his gospel is also sustained and preserved by him. And so that's a a word of, of affirmation and reaffirmation of the sovereign purpose and plan of God in every era, in every epoch, and through every season of the individual believer's life, as well as the broader context of the church's life as it ebbs and flows throughout history, that this is, this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the builder of it. He is the sustainer of it. He is the provider of it. He is the preserver of it. And that includes all of its orthodoxy, all of its doctrine, all of its theology. <clears throat> we talked about several different heresies um, that, that came on the scene early on in the church's history. Of course, the first one that we talked about very briefly, we really dealt with it significantly in the early part of our, our study as we looked in Acts. But obviously, the Judaizers were on the scene, you know, right in the middle of the, the gospel witness of the apostles. And of course, the Judaizers were those that wanted to add to the, the gospel message of salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, and added to it the, the ceremonial uh, acts of circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic Law as a means of salvation, as a necessary element to salvation. And of course, being able to confront that, you could look at that and say, well, that was easy, quote-unquote. Because, I mean, it, it was happening during the time of the apostles, and the apostles were authoritative sent ones by Christ himself. They were called by Christ himself. They carried the authority of the message of Christ and the revelation of Christ and the gospel witness and the, the, um, the message of the new covenant. They were the bearers of that message early on, so they, they were the ones that carried that authority, right? So you could kind of look at that and say, well, that was, that was easy. But as, as subsequent heretical teachings emerged further down the line, after the time of the apostles, on into the you know, second century, for example, 
you know, what, what, was the, what was the response like and how was it formulated? Um, and of course, in every case, you had, you had the Ebionites that we didn't really talk about too much, but they were fairly early on as well. And they taught that Jesus was a mere man who, by his perfect obedience to the law, sort of was justified and became the Messiah as, 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 as a matter of his obedience and his uh, perfect obedience to the law. So in other words, he wasn't incarnate as the Messiah. He became that through his human obedience. And then, we, of course, we talked about the Gnostics who were dualistic. They had sort of two different views of, of deity, if you will, and they had this idea about the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, um, being or Jesus being a spiritual emanation from the supreme deity, not really a, an incarnate, uh, fully God, fully man. They believed in the secret knowledge, as we talked about, as a means to salvation. We talked about Marcionism and how the Old Testament God is evil is kind of a, a variant, if you will, of Gnosticism. The Old Testament God is evil. The New Testament God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is good, but Jesus was not born in the flesh because flesh is bad. And so, again, another, uh, another sort of heretical teaching about the person and nature of Christ. You had Montanism. We talked about that in our most recent weeks about these ecstatic prophet, prophetic utterances and ongoing revelation and, and Montanus um, himself being the embodiment, of the, the embodiment of the paraclete, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit and, and all these things. So you have these, these heresies that were rejected prior to any church councils, save only the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, of course. So what did you have going on during that time? Well, you had, and I think this is something that we need to be encouraged by as we think about how the Lord preserves His people and His Word and His truth and His church. You had what Bruce Shelley terms a functional orthodoxy at work. Um, It was a functional orthodoxy of the early church. In other words, you did not have a 27-book bound New Testament put together with the Old Testament that everybody carried around in their app or in their pouch or whatever. But you clearly had orthodox, authoritative teaching that was part of the life and understanding of the church against which heretical teaching was measured and found to be uh, against sound doctrine. You had what was considered a consensus among early Christians about what constituted the basic outline and content of early Christian teaching. It was broad consensus. In fact, when you look at the writings from early church fathers who were writing from places across the Roman Empire, so in other words, we're not talking about just those writers who are clustered right there in Rome, for example, or centered right there in Antioch as another example, something like that, or in in Asia Minor. You have these writers that are writing from different regions spread far and wide, and their summaries, in any place where you find them sort of summarizing the essential doctrines of Christian teaching, they're strikingly similar which indicates that they're drawing from the same authoritative source material spread far and wide throughout the the known world at that time. 
So there was this functional orthodoxy that was soundly and clearly in place that was the truth against which error was being measured. These heresies that we've looked at included. Now let's just kind of, we're working our way eventually. Next week we're, we'll begin talking about canonization, how, the, how the, the canon of scripture came together. And this is where we're kind of headed to. This is sort of our, our introduction into that. But let's just talk about the early churches in its first few centuries of its existence, its sources of authority for doctrine. I mean, what were they? I mean, I use the term a functional orthodoxy, but that even sounds a little bit nebulous, right? I mean, it sounds like I'm just kind of saying there was this, you know, this vibe in the air that everybody kind of latched onto. But no, it was, it was, it was more, more tactile than that. So let's talk about this for a second. First, we need to understand that the early church, from the very beginning of its history, uh, adopted, accepted the Jewish scriptures as authoritative. Very early on, the law, the prophets, the writings, what we refer to as the Old Testament, it was part of their canon, if you will, which is really just a, a, another word for rule or ruler, a, a measuring rod, if you will, is the what canon it refers to. That's the term, what canon means. It was the rule of faith, if you will, and that's what, that's what the Old Testament became, both Jews and Gentiles. This was not just a Jewish thing, although it was initiated by what happened at Pentecost and the Christian faith being launched with the people of Israel there in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came. But they viewed the books of the Old Testament as authoritative and inspired by God. It became part of their rule of faith. Here's what Bruce Shelley says about this. He says, Since the first Christians were all Jews, Christianity was never without a canon, or as we say, Scripture. Jesus himself clearly accepted the Old Testament as God's word to man. Quoting Jesus, Scripture cannot be broken. And he also said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's from John 10.35 and Luke 24.44. Shelley goes on to say, Jesus believed the statements of Scripture, endorsed its teaching, obeyed its commands, and set himself to fulfill the pattern of redemption it laid down. Early Christians were simply heirs of this attitude. Christians, almost without exception, Embrace the Old Testament as their own. Early Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises running through the Old Testament. So, this idea of, that Marcion had, or even modern iterations of a similar kind of echo, are not historically accurate. In fact, you go into Acts and you see the Apostle Paul, and what was his pattern but to go into the synagogues, and reason from the scriptures, and take that message out into the marketplace of the Gentiles, and people were understanding this gospel message of Jesus Christ and salvation through this new covenant as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, what was taught in these synagogues. That's how the gospel message was proclaimed. Of course, we have the testimony of uh, Acts chapter 2, where you have this little snapshot of this early church. In 242 of Acts, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the apostles' teaching was something that was an ongoing matter of devotion in terms of learning and discipleship and understanding. This was not something that was 
ethereal and mystical and easily misunderstood or misconstrued. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that was part and parcel to their manner of worship when they gathered from house to house. You have, in fact, going forward from that, you have uh, the Apostles' Creed that came to light in about AD 140. So early on, during the time that these, some of these heresies were emerging, you have the Apostles' Creed, really the old Roman creed is in its original version is what it's referred to. In about AD 140, it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus His only Son, our Lord who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. So right there you have an assault on Gnosticism. The idea of him being born. So the issue for the Gnostics was not necessarily a virgin birth, but the fact that he was actually born. That's problematic for them. He was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried. This was a historical event. So it's tying back to the message of the gospel writers and the historical facts in which, and the historical events in which Christ came and lived and ministered and was tried and was crucified and was resurrected. In other words, it roots the gospel message and the teaching of the New Testament church in history and in this event of Christ's coming and His crucifixion and his resurrection. It says, On the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, life everlasting. So you have in this creed, this statement, which was believed to be a one, one statement that would be recited at the time of baptism for new, new believers, new converts, you have this very succinct but very clear and very New Testament-centric statement of faith, if you will. Small, succinct doctrinal statement that captures the essence of the New Covenant, New Testament Christianity, the Gospel message. You have references. Not, it's not a full-orbed development of Trinitarian doctrine, but you certainly have a reference to the Godhead in the Trinity, so these various aberrant teachings that came on the scene that wanted to uh, violate the truth of who Christ was, fully God and fully man, God in human flesh, not a phantom, not some spiritual emanation from a supreme deity, but fully God and fully man. An understanding of God not being you know, represented in three different ways, one God in three distinct persons. All these different rich doctrinal truths are summed up in this small statement. And this is early, early on in the church's history. So where did this information, this phantom information come from? Well, it didn't come from anything phantom. You have Justin Martyr. We talked about this uh, when we were actually talking about uh, some of the early church fathers a number of weeks ago, but you have this in, in about 150 to 160 AD. You have Justin Martyr describing, again, sort of like a, a further down the road version of Acts chapter 242 
and what's going on in the context of worship. What is an order of worship? What does the church do when it gathers? So he says this, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And listen to this. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. As long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. All in favor of now going forward referring to Shane as President Kohler. (laughs) But you have this simple description of the life of worship in the church in the mid-2nd century, and it's Acts 2.42, basically. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, meaning that it wasn't up to the binding process of 27 books into a New Testament canon to preserve or solidify or ensure the soundness of Christian teaching and the preservation of sound doctrine and the sustaining of the New Testament church. That is the work of God, and He does that by His Spirit and through His people. And this is just historical testimony to that fact. No, not at all. So the Da Vinci Code might have been an interesting book and possibly a popular movie, but it's not based upon historical truth or accuracy. That's make right. sure it's the right one, and to make sure that uh, the early church didn't go the route of Islam, where you start adding all the pastor's teachings as well. Right, right. And we're going to get more into that next week for sure when we get to the, more of the mechanics of how this kind of came about. But you're right, one of the prim- principles of canonization is not, it's, it's not a, um, uh, I'm not sure what the right term is. It was, it was the church recognizing the authority inherent in the revealed scriptures. The church didn't decide. It wasn't like we took a vote and said, yeah, this sounds good to me. I think that that's, I mean, I like this book or something, you know, akin to that. But it was this, it, the, the, the authority of the truth, the, the, the inspiration of God's word became obvious and apparent on its own right. And if you think about it, just think about it just logically for a second. If it had to be sort of duly recognized by men, what does that mean? That's the same, that's the same way of thinking that you, you have to deal with and confront 
when you're talking to an atheist who says, as soon as God reveals himself to me, meaning until I'm satisfied in my own thinking with the way that I think God needs to show himself to me, then I might believe. It's this absurd idea that God and his word and his standards and what he is doing in redemptive history and all of that is subject to the will, the wisdom, the rationale of men. And it's not and never has been and never will be. It stands on its own. It stands on the authority of who God is himself. And so that's what we see happening in and, and you see these indications of this throughout church history. This is not something that is, you know, men subsequent to the, the time coming up with ways to justify their system of belief after the fact. Or to rationalize and give sort of divine, quote-unquote, credence to their position and post of authority to be able to rule over other people. Now, there are other doctrines in the church that do that. There are doctrines outside the authority of Scripture, and men do that all the time. Men men are willing to lord over people all the time and use, quote-unquote, divine teaching to do that. Every, Every religion, even Christianity, is guilty of that plight, but that has nothing to do with the essence and truth and inspiration of the scriptures themselves. That has to do with the wickedness of men and their abuse of their authority. So you have these examples early on in history where you, you see that the church, and I'm talking widespread consensus, understood and was growing in and being exposed to the true teaching of Old Testament and New Testament revelation as a consistent work of God through redemptive history to bring about his sovereign purpose in saving his people and making his glory known. That, that's, that's what you see revealed even in these early periods of church history. And, and this study of heresy and looking at these early heretics, on one hand, it's useful for us, as we've talked about, because it gives us historical bearings for things that we even see today. We see that there's nothing new under the sun. It, it, it allows us to see that, you know what, what we're seeing play out in this particular quarter or in this particular strand of teaching is really just a repackaged version of Montanism or Marcionism. In other words, this is the same retread of something that's been going on for centuries, for millennia. And in fact, if you really want to get sound presuppositional thinking in, in play here, you just go back to Genesis 3, and you have all the pretext you need for understanding heresy and our, our willingness to, to buy into false teaching. When you see that, when you really look at that conversation between the serpent and Eve in the garden, you're not looking at a casual conversation. You're looking at instruction. You're looking at temptation, but you're also looking at instructing. The serpent is instructing Eve on what God really said or what God really meant by what he said or what God didn't mean by what he said or didn't say. Do you see how that twisting of, of truth, but it's still trying to instruct away from the clear teaching of God and his word. 
When you think about this in light of Scripture, um, if you want to turn to Titus chapter 1, I just want to read the first, starting in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, and read all the way through verse 15 of Titus chapter 2, because I think that this is really a great snapshot of the early church and the current church and the church throughout history. This is, this is the essence of the church. The church in day-to-day ministry, the church in leadership, the church in teaching and instruction, the church in confronting false teaching and heresy. It's, it's just this very instructive pattern and section of Scripture for our thinking around doctrine, around orthodoxy, around what theology really means, reasoned thinking and understanding about God. We're reasoning from the Scriptures and our understanding about God and who He is. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, speaking to Titus, Paul speaking to Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What is that about? Where did that come from? so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This was standard practice for the early church and has been through millennia. This is is the purpose of of teaching and putting in place elders who are above reproach, not so that they can lord over the congregation, but so that they can protect and preserve the deposit of faith and so that they can pass it on in instruction, and they can help people and themselves refute error. That's what this is about. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So again, this focus on teaching in sound doctrine, teaching good theology, not doing away with theology as a negative thing, but teaching good, sound theology, sound doctrine, establishing orthodoxy, standard of truth, so that you can refute those who are upsetting whole families, who are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. How do you know what they ought not to teach unless you know what they ought to teach, is the point. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may may be what? Sound in faith. This is all about soundness. It's all about orthodoxy. Truth, not orthodoxy as some confining stricture of rules-based salvation. Soundness around God's revealed truth and our understanding and application of it. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
to the pure, all things are pure, but the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then on in Titus chapter 2, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. Again, this focus on soundness. And in steadfastness, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and the word of God, that the word of God may not be reviled, a standard of truth over and over again referenced. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, bond servants, your life is to be a testimony of the truth that you know of God. The revealed truth, the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There again, the sovereignty of God working out this redemptive plan gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is what the church has been about, continues to be about at its very essence. At its very essence, it is holding up the revealed truth the revealed Word of God, the testimony of God's goodness and grace through Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that God revealed in the Old Testament coming to pass in the New Covenant and revealing that to men for salvation. It's teaching and instructing younger people, older people, teaching younger people in sound doctrine, an orthodox, true understanding of the Gospel. Now think about this picture of the church in light of some of the perception ideas that we put out at the very beginning of how people view orthodoxy, instruction, training in doctrine and righteousness, and how it, we are living in a day and time where we are calling people to be, to be devoted to an entity, to an experience, to a collective of people, for the sake of common interest, rather than a devotion to the truth and passing that truth on to the next generation. 
So when we talk about orthodoxy, we want to be orthodox, not Eastern Orthodox, not excessively liturgical Orthodox, not legalistic, rules-based salvation Orthodox, but Titus 1 and 2 Orthodox, certainly. And that is how the New Testament church has, does, and will in the future deal with heresies and false teaching of all kinds. We must be rooted and grounded in the truth that God has revealed. Any final thoughts or questions before we pray and are dismissed? All right.